0: welcome to Follow the Money Ball at the
1: intersection of sports and money, with a healthy dose of funny and irreverence, too. Here's your host, David Sloan. I'd like to welcome my guest for today, Jim Callis, who is the lead writer on MLB.com, covering primarily the draft and minor league prospects, correct, Jim?
0: Yeah, that is correct. I've been doing it for... You may have been agenting before I started in my line of work, David, but I bet it's pretty close, so... Um, yeah, no, I've been doing it for over 30 years.
1: Well, I started in 1974, and I think that predated even Baseball America.
0: Yeah, Alan Simpson didn't start that till 1981. So right. there you yeah.
1: go. Back then, there were not many ways to get stats, even, for, for guys in the minor leagues about the only thing that was available was the sporting news. And that was always at least a week or two behind in terms of ways to keep up with your but uh, so you grew up where now?
0: In in Northern Virginia, like so long ago that we did not have the Washington Nationals. I, I was born in 67. So by the time I was conscious of baseball, the Senators had left for Texas. So when I grew up, the Orioles were the it wasn't too bad. I mean, you could get to Baltimore in probably a little over an hour, but the Orioles were the closest team.
1: So, you grew up in the DC area and the Orioles were your team?
0: No, um, I, I was the guy, the kid who never liked any of the local teams. So, I didn't refrain from the teams. Um, who was your team? Sox. My, my grandparents had a place in Cape Cod, so we'd go up there every summer. So, the first baseball games I remember watching were on Channel 38 when you watched them over the air. You know, I'd watch Orioles it'd be kind of grainy a little bit because Baltimore was not our local station, but I could get Orioles games on channel two in Northern Virginia and they'd be a little scratchy, but you could still make out what was going on.
1: So you, you didn't learn on radio. I mean,
0: I, I did, so that too. Yeah, oh, okay. I did that too. Yeah. And like, it's, it's, I mean, all the younger people listening to this are going to be like, what are they talking about? But like, yeah, <laughs> back in the day, it was cool. You could get with just an AM radio games from, I mean, I couldn't get West coast games, but you could pick up, as far west as st louis and you could get all kinds of broadcasts like there were i mean i could listen depending on the weather conditions to red sox games you know especially if they're playing on the west coast and it was later and it was dark i could get west coast games so i did listen to a lot of games on the radio as well
1: yeah here in south florida it was uh, the, the easiest were yankees because there was always a huge new york presence down here in south florida and the Cubs before the Braves moved to Atlanta. Now, once the Braves moved to Atlanta, then WSB uh, was, was available. So you grew up like I imagine uh, an awful lot of us did, playing the game and listening to the game and watching the game. And how old were you when you first took note of the, let's call it the option, that uh, you might want to be a writer?
0: Um, You know, it's, it's funny because I remember my, my grandfather like I really got into baseball. I still vividly remember when I got into baseball. There was a friend of mine at school had a ton of baseball cards, and back then collecting was different too. You basically buy packs for the most part. Nobody was really right. buying cards from dealers. And he had a ton of extra cards, and just brought like a you know brown grocery bag to school and dang, just gave me a bunch of the cards. And that kind of that was the first thing I remember stimulating my interest. That, and then like you said, I mean we didn't have the internet, so you read the sporty news. You read Baseball Digest, and I remember as a young kid, there was this really cool baseball game. Before I started playing Stratomatic, I played this game called Shirko Baseball, which had the feel. Not familiar of that with that ball. one? Yeah, it was like it had a feel. It was it was somewhat basic. It was based you you know two dice you'd roll, um, the lower number you read first. There was like twenty one different combinations, so they kind of sorted guys two fifty to two ninety nine hitters were in one bucket, three hundred to three forty nine. In a different buck and it had ERAs. But the coolest part of the game when I was a little kid was it was on this 28 by 28 grid that you, you unfolded. It. it was a baseball field, and each square was like 15 feet. And the parks were different dimensions. You had a little chart that showed you where the fences were in various parks, and you would plot where the ball would go. And sometimes, you know, a home run in Fenway Park would not be a home run in, you know, place where it was deeper to left field. And you had players had different range grades, so they could cover more ground to you know, get to a ball. You know, so like it was, it was somewhat basic, but it was also kind of cool, and it it, it made you it like. It, it, I remember it impressed upon me, like guys who walked were valuable because they got on base more. Even you know, like yeah. a two hundred and fifty hitter who walked. Like it's time. I mean, I know people are listening to this going, "What is he playing? like?" But that was radical back in the. 70s, oh, and 80s, yeah. that like a 250 who drew walks might be more valuable than a 300 hitter. Like, yeah. people weren't thinking that way. But yeah, I remember – so anyway, I remember being up in the Cape Cape Cod in um, Centerville, Massachusetts, for outside Hyannis, and I would play the games. And then, again, because I was a devotee of the Sporting News, because, again, you know, Baseball America started. Alan Simpson started when the Sporting News cut back on their baseball coverage and all the stuff Alan loved, like the draft and minor leagues, they weren't covering more. But when I was reading the sporting news, like they, you wouldn't just get the box scores; they have like a couple paragraph or a paragraph, like description, like Johnny Bench hit two home runs and, yeah, you know, Pat Darcy threw six shutout inning. You know, they have a couple paragraphs. So I would write up little paragraphs of each of my games. I remember, I don't know, I was like ten years old at the time. And my grandfather. So wait, a me, wait, 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 cool. wait, wait,
1: So you're playing this game with friends of yours, and then you. I was playing, playing solitaire.
0: Right? You could play solitaire too. So.
1: And the well, like, write-ups of those games.
0: Yeah, I was writing up. I mean, I was kind of like the sporting news—not like long, long game stories, but like a paragraph. And I like—I I still don't know why. You know, weird things stick in your head, and I'm sure I mimic. I was mimicking the sporting news, but in one game, I referred to like—I uh, can't. What was it? Jose Morales, I think, at one point had the record for pinch hits in the season. Yeah, I want to say, which might have been 24. Yeah. Don't know why I remember that. And I and I wrote about how pinch hitter extraordinaire Jose Morales had heroic hit. And my grandfather really thought that was good you like like very good vocabulary for a ten or eleven year old to it use was. A, pinch hitter extraordinaire. So that was kind of the first time I remember like writing and um and then when it really took off was when I went to college. Yeah, I mean I I, would, I wrote for the school paper in high school, but you know, most people don't know what they want to do when they're teenagers. And yeah. so I went to the University of Georgia with the idea that I would, I, I got into business school. At the same time, my high school journalism teacher had relatives who had a newspaper somewhere near Athens, and I was going to do stuff there and kind of figure out what I wanted to do. But I never wound up working for her for the, the high school journalism teacher's relatives paper. I, I wound up working for the school paper and loved it. And it just so happened the first year I covered baseball at Georgia was the first time we ever went to the College World Series, and we had two first-round picks on the team. Um, and so I just loved it. And nobody else was covering it, not even the Athens paper didn't really cover the team until they got to Omaha. The Atlanta paper didn't really cover the team. And it was a, a good team. that had three future big leaguers on it. And Derek Lilquist and Chris Carpenter were first-round picks. Steve Carter got a cup of coffee. So anyway, I just loved – I mean, that t- I got to go to Omaha, fell in love with College World Series. And it was kind of cool. I mean, the parent, the, the players were great to me. Because I was the only one covering them, and I was – it was funny, David. I remember I, w- I was going on the road. I was going to Georgia Southern for midweek games. I drove down to Florida State. We played Florida State in a big series on the weekend. I drove down to Tallahassee, and my professors were great, too. They knew I loved what I was doing because the team was really good. And most of my professors were kind of the attitude, you're taking care of business if you miss class because you leave on Friday to drive to Tallahassee or you're going to miss the Wednesday class because." you're going to go watch Georgia Southern. That's fine. You know, so it was, everybody really encouraged me. It was really cool.
1: Even you been your non-journalism professors.
0: Yeah, no, I like it at that point. Well, I guess, you know, and I was going to say, I after my freshman year, I had a bunch of credits because I went to a high school, that encouraged taking AP tests, which again, I don't think a lot of high schools did back then. They do now. So I had right. almost a full year of credit when I got to Georgia, but that mm-hmm. also meant I had to make my decision quick on my major. Cause after my first yeah. year there, I was essentially almost a junior academically, so I had switched. But yeah, even my non-journalism teachers, I remember my, like, I mean, I, I had grades and I did my work, um, but they were all of the attitude, like, yeah, just your assignments in, like, you're doing well in the class. But yeah, it was, it was great. I mean, it was really encouraging. Like, all the non-journalism professors were encouraging. We had an independent school paper, so we weren't part of the school. It was independent. We had an ad staff that sold ads. Uh, but we were, like, the only school newspaper there was. But when the team went to Omaha, the uh, athletic department and the newspaper split the cost of me go to Omaha, which was pretty cool. I guess because I had covered the team all year and the school paper wanted to send me, but I think they wanted to foot the whole bill. And so I, I traveled with the team. And that was pretty cool too. Like, like thinking about all these years, they didn't have to do that. And then at that point I was hooked. So I was. So hooked. you
1: were 19, 20 years old at the time.
0: Yeah, and it was funny. So again, we'll, we'll, I'll date myself again. <laughs> Back then, there was no internet. So find out where we had to get ranked, where we were ranked in the rankings, and Baseball America had the best rank. You had to call Baseball America, and they would read you the top 25, one through 25 every week, which was kind of a funny way to do it. So we would do that. And so they had a year-long internship. But they were so short-handed, it was going to be a bunch of filing and office work. And I was like, I'm not going to put my degree on hold for a year to do that. But I started talking to John Shear, who was the managing editor of the magazine at the time. And I called him about the internship. We got to talking. I found out, okay, I'm not going to be interested in it. But I was like, I, I, I was a little bull. I was like, how do you pick who writes some of your features when you do features on players on college players? Because they had written features on Lilquist and Carpenter using a writer from the Athens paper, then a, a writer from the Atlanta paper. And I was like, those guys didn't even come on the team. Like they weren't at any of the games. And, um, and we just got to talking, and then next spring they had me write a feature on how Georgia was rebuilding his pitching staff. And then they had an internship that was a summer internship. To um, the, the first thing I did, they were doing a big book on history of the draft. And the first project I undertook was I literally input the, like name, position, school, and then an asterisk if you didn't sign for every player who'd been drafted from 1988 at that point,
1: which was data entry.
0: It was, it was. But I, I did it I did it well enough and quick enough that I had enough time to do writing. And at that point, like, I knew I wanted to work for Baseball America. I mean, at the time, uh, and again, I mean, this was 30, almost 35 years ago. Nobody else covering prospects. Nobody was kind to draft. I would started reading the magazine in high school because I just thought it was really cool the depth they went into, which nobody else was doing. At that point, they were your source for minor league stats. Yes, they were two weeks old by the time you got them. You, that was your own choice. Like, you had no, 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 one quarter left. They hired me to come back after I finished my degree. And the winter meetings were in Atlanta. So I literally turned in my last pay. I had a class where you could turn in a paper, take a file. And I drove from Athens to Atlanta for winter meetings. And I've been working ever since.
1: So not only were, and correct me if you disagree, not only were they not covering the draft, that much, or covering even more importantly, prospects. But teams were not really valuing prospects back then, like they do now, or have for the last several years since the Moneyball book came out.
0: Uh, yeah, I, I would agree. I don't, th- I mean, I think they care about prospects, but not like they do today. And I think, I I don't think about it that if you have young players who are good, their cost. Con- I mean, they knew they were cost controlled, but the way salaries have continued to grow, grow, and grow. Now, if you have a really young player, you know, like Mike Trout as a rookie, was probably in terms of what he did on the field, worth like I don't know, seventy million dollars production to the Angels, and he was making less than five hundred thousand dollars. And I don't think teams necessarily were aware of that. I don't think they were that. You know, when I started thirty years ago, that how much you might have a vague idea of the concept, but exactly how much they were saving. And as salaries have continued to go up and up and up. I mean, I still remember when a guy making a million-dollar annual salary was like, oh, the horrors, what's what's going on? Oh, Look, it was
1: the end of the was, world.
0: Yeah. These, it was going to be the ruination were, of the cool. game. Yeah, and then, and then it blew him way past that, and I think it even more puts an emphasis on if you have a young player and productive, like that's worth even more than yeah, – you're getting more value out of that guy than you are if – whoever, you know, if, if Garrett Cole goes out and after a year, you're still paying Garrett Cole $5 million, and that if you have a young pitcher who's really, really good, and he's making the minimum, like, it's the equivalent of the NFL contract. It just makes it a lot easier to put players around him. So I, I don't think teams were looking at it all like that, and you mentioned the draft too, David. I mean, I started, again, it's funny now that we have the draft is being broadcast on two networks, and MLB has moved it to the All-Star game to put a greater spotlight on it. When I started, it was top secret. And you probably remember this, David. They, he would, they would release the first round. And after that, you would get a draft list like maybe a few days later. But it didn't def- differentiate between round between the guy who was taking the second round. And back then, you could draft forever. And the guy who was drafting the 88th round, they had this notion that college coaches were using the draft list to recruit. And they didn't have the college coaches to know what rounds players were taken in, (laughs) which is crazy. But that's kind of how they looked at the draft back then.
1: Well, I'd like to think that I played somewhat of a part in that, too, because the logic, if you will, was also that agents were using the draft to recruit. And that was 100 percent true. I mean, my first full year of being an agent was 1975. And I acquired a client who was taken in the first round of the draft that year by the name of Sam Wellborn. Well, I had never heard of Sam Wellborn before the draft, but I saw, <laughs> but I saw that he was taken in the first round by the Phillies, and immediately saw where he was from, and I have just figured, okay, how many Wellborns are there in Wichita Falls, Texas? And I got out the you know phone. And just started calling people. And eventually I reached the right Wellborn and talked to his dad. And, you know, from there on eventually wound up uh, acquiring him as a client. And there I was at the age of 23, sitting in a room at the Astrodome Hotel across from Dallas Green, who had been in baseball for about 100 years at that point. And again, I'm 23 years old and I'm negotiating a contract for Sam Wellborn. The other big thing at that point in regard to the draft and particularly agents was so many players were afraid to get an agent because yep. they were afraid that if they had an agent that the team would look differently at them. And yeah, they would but, because they knew they were going to have to give you more money if you had a reasonably confident
0: I remember, I mean, I was, I was not covering it then, but talking to Alan Simpson, the year that Mike Moore went number overall, it was because he didn't have an agent. I think Ron that was your Ron Darling was you know at Yale, but he had an agent, so Darling slipped. That was a hundred percent true. I and mean, then you know, because you were agenting back then. Again, the bonuses were much smaller. And teams, not only did they not want you to have an agent, if you even tried to negotiate, well, you don't really want to play Pro Ball. Like if you want to play Pro Ball, you'll just take what we'll give you. Yeah. And you know, when they started the draft, the year before, in 1964, the year the draft came in 65, Rick Reichert was a two-sport star, football guy, baseball guy at Wisconsin. He got a bonus, a little over $200,000. And then the draft came, and Rick Monday got roughly half of that as the number one pick in 1965. Yeah. Anybody even match Rick Reichert's bonus on the open market till the mid to late 80s. Yeah. Like, like bonuses just didn't get, shows you the the power of the open market. And the story I always like to tell, and again, I wasn't covering it, but just talking to people who worked in baseball. So, so Barry Bonds, you know, you can love or hate Barry Bonds, but obviously on the field, one of the greatest players of all time, was a second-round pick out of high school in 1982. Drafted by the Giants, a team for which his father had starred. He's Willie Mays' godson. You think the Giants are going to get this done. I mean, these days, you don't not sign your second-round pick. right? And I've heard, I've heard two versions of He wanted $66,000. Where they offered him seventy thousand, and he wanted seventy five thousand dollars, and the Giants were like, "No, you can just go to Arizona State over like five or six thousand dollars," and he wound up being a first round pick, and and then one of the greatest players in baseball history. But I mean, that's how it was back then. If you weren't grateful that this team was going to pay you to play professional baseball, a lot of times. I mean. You go back and look at all these guys who were great college players in the 80s, like Barry Larkin and Will Clark and Randy Johnson and Rafael Palmeiro. All these guys, most of those guys were relatively high picks out of high school who didn't just jump at the offer they got, and they wound up going to college and became really good players and got drafted high and then were in the big leagues almost immediately. And I think that's kind of when it started to turn, when teams realized, you know, we're kind of looking at this wrong. If we're identifying the right players in high school – but we're not paying enough to sign them. Maybe we should pay them. And then things kind of change. But it was it was just a totally different era back then.
1: Well, I'll tell you one of my great draft stories. So in 1976, I represented a player by, by the name of Herman Segelke. He was from South San Francisco, and the Cubs drafted him with the seventh pick in the first round. And they offered him $30,000 to sign. And they told me the, the rationale for that was their number one pick the year before, who I had tried to recruit unsuccessfully, a kid by the name of Brian Rosansky, was the number four pick, and they had signed him for $40,000. The number four (laughs) pick in the first round. So they basically said their $30,000 offer was take it or leave it. And I said, fine, we'll leave it. Now, Herman was not a great student. And as a result of that, his options as far as college baseball were limited. But the Cubs... Really hadn't done their homework in that regard. And I had become acquainted with Justin Dado, Rod Dado's son, a coach at the University of Southern California. And my roommate, Gary Atwell, at Arizona State, had played on the first all-star team that went over to Japan. And that was how he got to know Justin, because Justin was part of the coaching staff along with his dad. So at any rate, I got in touch with Justin and I said, hey, Justin, look, um, I've got something that uh, would benefit both of us if you're willing to work with me. said, what is it? I said, I got this kid who's who's drafted in the seventh round that I'm representing. The Cubs have drawn a hard line. It'd really be great if I could release a story to the Chicago newspapers that he was going to sign a letter of intent to attend USC. And... Justin said, well, I don't have any problem with that, but it'd be good if I had a scholarship for him just in case he did show up. What are the chances of him going to school? And I said, Justin, the only way he could get into USC would be with burglar tools. Mm -hmm. And Justin allowed me to release that story. And literally 24 hours later, the Cubs' offer went from 30,000 to 50,000. They threw in some college money, which we both knew Herman was never going to use, and the incentive bonus. And Herman signed and went off to rookie camp. So that yeah. that was just the way things were back then. But again, the number seven pick signing for 50 grand, 50 grand. It was a completely different world back then. So so let me let me go back a, a, a little bit to earlier point in our discussion. So nine or 10 years old, you were writing these sporting news type blurbs. That's amazing to me. And the reason that it's so amazing to me is you probably don't appreciate it, but for most people, one of the most difficult skills is learning how to write. I mean, I can remember remember my freshman year at Arizona State, there was a guy who, who I became friends with who was on the baseball team, a kid by the name of Kent Jacobson, And Jake played pro ball, uh, wasn't drafted high, and I think he got to double A or triple A with the Brewers. But at any rate, we're in a, a political science class where there was, you know, two, 300 kids in an auditorium taking notes. He didn't know how to take notes. He didn't know how to write a coherent term paper. And this was a kid who was a freshman in college, so 18 at least years old, 17, 18 years old. And here you were at 10 writing Things that your your grandfather uh, looked at and said, "That's great!" in comparison to the way things were in the sporting news. So, you were undoubtedly a a writing prodigy. And and boy, talk about! I, I was
0: lucky. My mom, my mom didn't. I mean, she got into real estate later, but when I was young, she was just taking us home to uh, staying home, taking care of me. And she um she actually taught me to read when I was two. Um, so I read a ton. I mean, I think you become – I think the two ways you become better at writing are, one, by reading and seeing how other people write, and two, by writing a lot, um, the more you do it – like a lot of things, the more you do it, the better you get. And I was fortunate that I had my mom and, you know, taught me how to read when I was really young. Um, took me off and take me to – my mom, my grandmother, to the local uh, Krispy Kreme, and I'd be reading the donut flavors – and the people behind my grandmother would always tell the woman behind the counter, would be like, "Yeah, how?" And they would, "Oh, yes, he is," and have me read some more. But they encourage. I, I learned how to read when I was young, and I always, my, you know, one go anytime I want more books, off to the library. And, you know, nice feedback from my grandfather. Yeah, you, know, you know, you're 10 years old. Your grandfather's like, "Hey, this is really well written." Even though it was probably three senses, just encourages you to do more. So I had. I had a lot of people encouraging me, I guess, when I was young.
1: No question about that. And, and that had to play a huge role in it. But um, you had to also be pretty damn good. So I, I think that there was uh, some natural ability there, just like uh, a kid at 10 years old being a prodigy as a pitcher. Um, you were obviously a prodigy as a, as a writer. I
0: probably would have traded if I'd been given the option, but it (laughs) it didn't work out that way. I
1: I understand as, as probably would have uh, all of us, you know, um, it's, it's, it's certainly something everyone, you know, enjoyed playing the game and, and would have loved to have been able to play it better. Even, even great players. I know, um, guys that I represented who, who played in the majors. It was like, well, you know, if I would have been able to do this a little bit better, I'd have been a better player. And, you know, pitchers always wanted to hit, um, that sort of stuff. So, you know, I, I, I had guys that, uh, were pitchers as like, oh man, they won't let me swing the bat. I'm telling you, I'm a good hitter. I'm a good hitter. Yeah, sure. Sure. You are.
0: Every pitcher thinks they can hit, I say.
1: Yep. No question about it. No question about it. So, um, In regard to to that comparison, playing and writing about playing, um, you know, there's a great quote from Jim Bouton that says, uh, uh, you spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out that it was the other way around all the time. Would you say that a similar situation exists in terms of of writing? Um, For example, if you weren't writing for MLB, would you be writing books let's say or for for
0: a different publication i don't know because you know it, like i've kind of done the same thing pretty much my whole career um i mean i guess probably because I've, I've done it for so long like but like i don't know what like if i hadn't started work for baseball america i don't know what my my path would have been because there weren't a lot of different options back then in journalism um but i pretty much have been doing what i've been doing i mean only thing at the time I did something a little bit different I, when we moved from North Carolina where baseball America is still based my wife and I moved to um, Illinois where she grew up and she's involved in the family business 1997 and we had two young kids and we, we'd have four But then it was so long ago you couldn't really work remotely very easily so I worked at stats Inc for a couple of years and back then it was like they did a number of books. I was in the publications department. So there was writing involved there to the same extent. And then baseball America got sold technology changed. And they asked if I want to come back and work from home, which was great with with three and then soon four young kids at that point. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, I obviously enjoy writing. um, So yeah, I mean, I probably would have found some similar career, I guess. Um, I mean, the funny thing is like, it could have turned out differently because when we moved up here, and again, I mean, this was – the Internet was just starting, which seems strange to say. So there weren't, you know, a, a lot of – you know, it wasn't like there's all these places, outlets on the Internet. But I, I interviewed – I came up here. There were, there were three – when we knew we wanted to move up here, but I need to – there's some kind of job up here. I interviewed at three places up here. There was Stats, Inc., which is still going strong and is still in the Chicago area, although they kind of altered the way they did things. They got bought out by Fox Sports about three years later, right after or right before I moved or switched back to VA, I interviewed with Inside Sports. They were based in downtown Evanston, where where Baseball Digest was also based. It was the same publishing company, although they eventually went under, so it was good that I didn't actually go that route. And then I was really interested in working for Pro Football Weekly, which was based in suburban Chicago. and was kind of the football version of baseball America. And I, I interviewed there and interview went well, but stats Inc. Offered me a job first and I took it. So like if, if stats Inc. had dragged their heels, dude, I might've gone to work for pro football weekly in 1997 and they, they're no longer in business. I mean, I obviously would have gone on something else, but like I might've been in pro football weekly for 10 or 15 years. Yeah.
1: In terms of writing though, Do you feel that there's an important part of you that is expressed in your writing? Because your writing is different from Jason Stark's writing or Ken Rosenthal's writing or Bob Nightingale's writing. And that being said, do you feel that that is even a small facet of who you are? That need to express yourself in the innate Jim Callis way
0: maybe a little less so than you might think just because a lot of, a lot of my writing has evolved now. Or I'm writing up draft reports or player reports for, for minor leaguers, which isn't exactly creative. You're more, I mean, I do try to put some work in and give you some background on the player. And I do try to dig deeper. Like, but, but I, I get what you're saying too, because like, I just did like, I don't get to do as many features because I'm doing so much reporting and ranking of players, but I just wrote a feature on Scott Rowland and how the Phillies scouted him when he was, you know, again, this was way back when, 1993. He's in southern Indiana, which is not a baseball hotbed. How he lasted 46 picks, and he was a two-sport guy. And, like, like I didn't do that because you you got to show off your writing chops a little bit and tell a story, and that was fun. And I guess thinking about just talking to you here, David, I, I guess it, it's not even so much the writing, it's like, I put a lot of time and effort into ranking players and I know that there's not necessarily a right or a wrong answer. We may not know that answer for five or 10 years down the line. Cause a lot of these guys are pretty young and they're, they're high school players if we're talking about draft guys, but I still take a great deal of pride in, in having good information and making sound decisions and how I rank them, if that makes sense or mock draft where I'm projecting the first 28 picks where Again, I'm not being Mr. (laughs) I'm not being as stylistic as say Jason. There, I'm just trying to hit you with a bunch of information about who teams might pick. I deal with pride in having the best information and making more phone calls. Yeah, I mean, I I guess it's funny. I hadn't really thought about it, but but I guess I do. I I guess that it's necessarily, you know, like again, I'm like I'm writing memorable prose, but I hope I'm giving you a lot of like when I'm writing down reports from my craft. Even in those cases where you're not being creative per se, I still am taking a lot of pride in trying to express. hey, I've talked to a bunch of people and here's what I got.
1: Well, I'm not just saying this to blow smoke up your ass. I think the, the thing that's always stood out for me in your writing is your perspective. You have not just taken a straight, okay, I heard from three scouts regarding this guy and their opinion is this, this, and this, and I've seen the guy myself and I've baked that into the cake and now here's what I'm putting out. Your perspective is completely different than that. Your perspective is one that I think encompasses a deeper dive, let's call it, than most of the the other people that cover the same ground that you do. And I think that's one of the things that makes you a great writer. That's just my perspective and take it for that, which really isn't worth much. But nonetheless, th- that's one of the things that for me has always stood out about you in addition to, to just who you are as, as a human being, which is a, a great person, a great guy. Um, pivoting uh, in a different direction here, um, you cover college baseball a long time, And I'm sure you've also taken note of developments in other areas of college sports. I'm wondering, do you think that there will come a day in the not-too-distant future where some of the uh, name, image, and likeness money is going to go into college baseball? Because there's always been an occasional prospect who is ranked highly, and for whatever reason, um, does not sign with a team. And, and generally, that's been in the past because his price wasn't met or he was drafted by a team that, that approached him poorly or whatever the case may be, and the kid winds up as you know, first or second-round talent going to college baseball. Now, I'm wondering if it's going to change where you get a kid who may be, let's say, a marginal first-round draft choice, and he's approached by a college coach and who tells him, okay, look, they're offering you decent money, but we can provide you with a quarter of a million dollars in NIL funds for the three years that you'll play here before you're drafted again. And when you come out as a junior, you'll be drafted much higher. Do you think that will happen? And, and if so, when do you think that that will start having an effect on, on the way that uh, the draft is occurring anymore?
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, first-round pick, you're talking 3000000 $3 million. Let's even say second-round pick. Like, like, if it's a high school kid, it might be $2 million. I just don't know how many schools have that kind of NIL money. Like, it's fine. Like, I'd love to know. what Like, everybody thinks LSU, and they may. Well, LSU probably does have the best NIL program out there for baseball right now. But nobody really knows what you know. Dylan Cruz was getting, or Paul Skeens is getting, and I've heard rumors of seven-figure deals for players. But I've also heard, ah, it's more like a hundred thousand dollars a year for ten years. I, I, I don't. So we don't know. Like it's all just random speculation. LSU continues to, you know, do great in recruiting. But there's also a lot of reasons you want to play at LSU. I mean, it's a great program. It's a great fan base. Johnson's coaching staff are great coaches. They just won the national title. So it's, it's hard to say. I, I don't know. I, I think it makes more of a difference for that guy who might be on the fence, who maybe he's like he wants a million dollars, and it's, and he's waffling. Where then the nil money makes a difference. It's like yeah, you know what? Like because because you you said you're exactly right. It's a lot easier to get paid if you've proven yourself in three years of college. You know, especially for certain profiles of players too. There's pitchers who don't take off till they get older. There's position players who are good hitters but not really necessarily good athletes and teams tend to be okay let's see if you hit in college before we pay you big money I think those guys who are on the bubble but I don't know if we're going to ever get in a situation or I should say ever but I don't know if we're close yet to where you're going to have a guy who's like a three million dollar player two million dollar player where the NIL money is big enough to lure him to college if he does exactly like I still I just, as much as I love college baseball, I don't know that it's big enough enough places to where you're going to have that kind of NIL money. Do you, I mean, how close do you think we are on that?
1: I think we're fairly close. And, and, and here's, here's my rationale, Jim. First of all, you mentioned LSU. Um, they've got a gymnast there, uh, a female gymnast who's making yep. over a million dollars. And, and I don't think they're drawing nearly the numbers for gymnastics, that they're drawing for baseball. Uh, another reason that I believe that's the case is that when I, when I started at Arizona State, they had a you know reasonably small on-campus baseball facility. And then they moved into Packard Stadium where their, the seating capacity was probably a couple of thousand. Well, now you can hardly go to a school in any one of the D1 conferences that does not have a baseball facility that seats at least a couple of thousand. And there are several, correct me if I'm wrong, that have seating capacity capacities in excess of 5,000. And you know they've got broadcast deals with, with various streaming services and things like that. So there's a lot more money generated in baseball uh, in college than there used to be. In addition to which, they're identifying these promising prospects much, much earlier. Back when I was in high school and playing ball, the, the kids that I played with that got college scholarships, for the most part, they were not identified until the coaches saw how they performed in their senior year of school. Now right. they're identifying promising players as a freshman in high school, if not sooner, because of the various showcases. That are taking place and they're following these kids all along and they want to get those kids because they've spent money just following those kids in time and they're going to want to get some return on their investment and in order to do that they've got to recruit the best talent and uh, again i don't think it's going to be where you're going to see a a kid who's in a position assigned for three or four million dollars and any school, whether it's LSU, USC, Georgia, Florida State, Miami, any of the big baseball schools, you're not going to see them come to the kid and say, "Well, look, you'll get four million if you sign. Um, right. we'll We'll match that. But what they're going to do is they're going to say, "We'll give you a lot of money. And in addition to that money, you're going to get the opportunity to be a college kid, which, as you and I both know, is the best job you'll ever have. Yep. And get an education. Build your name in that community so that even if you don't make it in the big leagues, um, you know, you could come back to Athens, for example, and, and, you know, get some sort of job through the alumni network. And you're set for life, essentially, as opposed to, you know, if you sign and you don't make it in the big leagues and you don't take advantage of the money that you're given for college, you're you're shit out of
0: luck, to be quite frank about it. So I th- yeah, I just. I, the only thing I, I just don't know how. Like, I think LSU is is unique. Like, like they've been so baseball crazy for so long. Like, you know, I went to Georgia, and I don't think that many fans of Georgia care about college baseball to where they're gonna have that much NIL money for player. We'll have to see. Like, you, you brought up Olivia Dunn, and she's she's interesting, but she also has a huge Instagram yep. presence, yep. which I think is. You know, even like, you know, Bobby Wood Jr. was one of the more famous high school kids in recent memory, but it's not like Bobby Wood Jr. had, again, it, I mean, this thing's exploded over the last four or five years, too. Well, I guess we're we've got to be good. Max Clark, who was the number three pick by the Tigers this year and granted I mean, him, he got $7.7 million he was going to sign, but he did have a social media following. So maybe if you like, I think you need more than just baseball talent, at least initially to get. And I know I'm speaking from a place of ignorance here, too. I just don't know how much NIL money there is in baseball. I believe LSU has a decent amount, but I don't know how much my alma mater, Georgia, has for baseball. Football, yeah, I'm sure we have some NIL money devoted to football. Basketball and baseball, I don't, I don't think we have that much going to, to Georgia athletes.
1: Well, I think that what's happening is the schools are forming, they call them collectives
0: where they're raising money
1: with the collective and the collective can allocate the funds where they they want it to go. And I think that you're right. Baseball doesn't garner the attention in college that football does and and in some schools as basketball does. But when when they have a good team, when they have a team that's contending for at least a regional tournament, then there's a lot more interest and where the interest flows, the, the money follows soon behind yep. it. Another factor I think that that is coming to bear is that a lot of these kids that, as I said earlier, are being identified much sooner, much younger, and fortunately, or in my opinion, unfortunately, are getting hooked up uh, with agents much earlier. And the agents are helping them create social media following. And that all comes to bear in terms of, okay, you know, here's here's what it's going to take, University of Georgia, if you want to recruit my guy to, to come to your school sort of thing. So I, I think it's a changing landscape. I don't think it is changing as as significantly or nearly as rapidly as it's changing in football, which is changing most quickly of all, or basketball, which basketball there's a completely different paradigm because you're essentially looking at one and done kids um, right. as opposed to baseball. You're, you're looking at kids that are, that are going to come and play for three years. So I've mentioned showcases a couple of times. What's your opinion on those? Do you think that they are a benefit to the game or do you think it's a, a detriment? Because I have my opinions, but uh, no one's interested in them nearly as much as they are in yours.
0: Well, I, I think there's, there's benefits and detriments to showcases. And again, this is, I guess, a sign that you're old is how much different things are. Like when I started, maybe the Area Code Games was going on, and then I think yeah. Team 1 had a showcase or yep. two. But there weren't showcases. Now everybody, there's showcases, depending on where you live, year-round. Like if the weather's good enough, there's showcases all over the place. I think early today, people players get seen. Players don't fly under the radar as much as they used to. Both I'm not just seeing saying sign Pro Ball. Like to me, and I'm with you, like, unless you're getting paid, you know, an amazing amount of money. And even then, I think a lot of guys who'd be first out of high school would be first round picks out of college. The college experience, I just that's very that would be very valuable to me. So showcases, you know, getting played maybe it's not players going in pro ball, but it, it helps them get a chance to play college and helps them you know, get a college experience or enhance their college experience is important. So I think that part's good. I do think the parents and players don't necessarily understand the showcases as much as they should. Like, you don't have to go to every showcase. I, I think that there's some kids who try to go to a, a bunch, and you don't need to go to every showcase. I think, unfortunately, there's a showcase mentality where – if I'm going to showcase, I'm going to train for the showcase. And that's going to be throw the ball as hard as I can, spin the ball as fast as I can, hit the ball as hard as far as I can. And I don't think that necessarily is great for the health of players in, in some cases. It's more like players and their parents sometimes focus on developing tools rather than skills. But, but the team's rewarded too. I mean, it's funny, like the teams will acknowledge, hey, you know, pitching all about velocity but who are the pitchers who get rewarded the most in the draft, especially on the high school side? It's the guys who throw the hardest or spin the ball the fastest. I think they've, they they allow players to be seen much more easily than they were back in the day. And from a scouting standpoint, best players, and that didn't exist when I started. You know, you'd have, you know, I don't know why Earl Cunningham jumps to mind, former Cubs first-round draft pick in 1989, top-ten pick, this big strapping dude from South Carolina you mean Earl Cunningham leads. the guy who
1: brought who bought six cars within the first year after he signed his first contract you I you, don't know about did that. you hear Maybe. that story
0: the, 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 I don't remember that one but the problem was like Earl Cunningham's playing South Carolina high school competition yeah. and he never saw anybody resembling pro pitching yeah until he got a pro ball <laughs> what happened he got blown away by pro pitching I mean there were a lot of guys that that happened to Paul Coleman was I, I don't want remembering gosh 1980 draft but Paul Coleman was another guy, great athlete. Al Shirley was like a couple drafts later. And you go on and on and on. And but now you have the showcase circuit and you can see guys perform against you know, you can see the best hitters against the best pitchers and get a better sense of how it's going to play when they're facing better competition. So there's there's some positives, but like I also think I, I also think there's kids, and the parents are well intentioned, like, oh, we've got to get my kid a scholarship and it's hard enough to get a scholarship in baseball anyway um so we're gonna send the we're gonna spend a bunch of money to send my kid to a bunch of showcases when that kid probably isn't good enough to go pro or, or play at a high level college and yet the parents are spending hundreds and hundreds of dollars sending them to multiple showcases thinking it's going to make their kid a better player And I don't think that's necessarily the case.
1: Well, I I don't know if you're a fan of the show on HBO, uh, Real Sports with Bryant Gumbel, but uh, a couple of years ago, they had a segment where there was a family that had, I think, a couple of sons and a daughter, and the sons played baseball and the daughter ran track. And between the three kids, they paid 50 grand a year to travel and go to showcases uh, with those kids. That's, that's a, you know, even if you're fairly uh, well off, that's still a, a, a big bite in the wallet. Uh, for me, the biggest problem that I have seen in regard to showcase or biggest problems is that they started out where it was the seniors in high school that got invited to these showcases. Then it went from seniors in high school to the next draft class and then it just kept getting younger and younger and younger and younger and i've seen showcases for kids as, long, as as young as 9 there was a guy there was there was an attorney who i was talking to a couple of years ago in regard to a, another uh, enterprise i was involved in and i told him i said okay you know we're talking on tuesday can i call you friday afternoon well no i won't be here i've got to take my son he's involved in a travel ball tournament I said, oh, your son plays ball? He said, yeah, what position? Second base. I said, how old is he? He said, seven. So a seven-year-old was playing travel ball. Now, I wasn't even playing organized baseball at seven. And granted, you know, I'm a dinosaur. But nonetheless, you literally didn't even start back then until nine years old. So I think that that's one big problem is that it's the, the, the emphasis has gotten younger and younger and younger and younger. And when you've got adults involved it takes the fun out of the game. And and that to me is is, is horrible because
0: that's the most important thing. The other there's thing. There's constant pressure to perform too, David. Yep, like there's what... constant pressure. I, I think it, I mean, one of the reasons, I mean, I think pitchers are getting hurt because they're also throwing and twerking the ball more than ever. But like if you're a pitcher and you're going to showcases throughout the year, yep. like there's no downtime. Like I, I don't, it seems like a lot of great, and again, maybe I'm, you know, get off my lawn. I'm, I'm talking like an old guy, but a lot of great players when I was growing up were starting to cover it. Were multi-sport guys who yeah. played baseball in the spring and maybe you played during the summer and football in the fall and basketball in the winter. Yep. And it kind of develops different groups of muscles. If you're a pitcher, it gave you some natural time off. And now, I mean, I, I think a lot of it is just the rise in colleges of college education and everybody's convinced like their son's, you know, or, or daughter, you know, maybe, are going to get a scholarship. So we've got to find their talent and then nurture and enhance that talent at a very young age so they can get a scholarship. And even with the cross education going up, like the real sports example you just cited, even if you get a full scholarship, you probably spent more than that, you know, doing all these, you know, 100%. showcases and personal trainers and nutritionists and yep. massage therapists and Everything. And so on. Yeah. Even with the rising cost of college education, I mean, let kids be kids. No, I, And again, I'm not trying to, to come down the showcase circuit. I, I think a lot of it comes from parents who are convinced this is what's best for their kid. And I, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I do think there's some benefits, to it, but I also think there should be some time off where you're not working about baseball 24-7, 365.
1: Well, look, you mentioned Scott Rowland and... Perfect example. He was also a, a very good basketball player. So, you know, there's the example of- he played
0: tennis too. He yeah. played tennis in high school as well.
1: So, you know, he, he was a good athlete and, and was not totally focused on baseball. Um, you mentioned the other thing that I was going to say in terms of the problems with showcases is parents. They misinterpret the the results, if you will, of a showcase. Kid goes to a showcase blows up and now all of a sudden a parent who's looking at a kid from the perspective of maybe this kid would be good enough to get a scholarship to a D2 or D3 or an NAIA school and now all of a sudden oh he's a number one draft choice. Why? Because he got a hit off of a kid who was touted as a potential number one draft choice and one of the things that, that took the shine off of the agent business for me was the fact that it had gotten so out of whack in terms of the focus of the parents. Instead of them just being the number one fan of their kids, it devolved to where parents viewed their kids generally in one of two ways, either as a meal ticket, or as a way for the parents to jerk off their egos, where they were able to say to another kid's parents, well, my kid's gotten a scholarship from better, offer from better schools than your kid. And that to me is, is just a horrible perversion of, of just the entire purpose of, of having your kid play any sport, wh- whether it's baseball or football or whatever the sport may be. And, and I hated to see that. And even worse, I hated to deal with it. Um to a great extent, also, the kids misinterpret the, uh, the results as well, because they do um, a good job at a showcase. And all of a sudden, they're picking out a place in Cooperstown where their Hall of Fame plaque is going to go. And that just really, as I say, it took a, a lot of the shine off of the agent business for me. Well, Jim, look, I've already kept you longer than I thought I would. Is there a particular area that you'd like to, to cover before we conclude here, I, I don't want to, you know, ruin your entire Saturday.
0: Yeah. No, no. I mean, this has been fun kind of reminiscing and, and to my kids about things that happened before the internet existed. They just look at me and they're like, what? And, um, it's like, no, like, believe me. And it did. No, it this has been fun kind of talking about it. It's, the NIL question is really interesting. because, like I said, it's, I don't know if we'll ever see. It, it seems like Congress is anxious to pass NIL legislation because they're getting the NCAA, but um I'd be very curious just to see what the NIL numbers are.
1: For baseball, you mean?
0: You know, I've I've heard so many different rumors. I'd be very curious. Like, that is something that'll be interesting to see. And that's one where, I mean, you're an agent. I'm a player's advocate. And it's funny. Like, every once in a while, I'll bump into somebody who knows what I do. I'll start talking like, oh, it's crazy how much money these players make. These guys making NIL money why Why is the coach allowed, or, or like the big one now is the transfer portal, David. Like, oh, this transfer portal, this is terrible. And it's like, why shouldn't the players be able to, to, to move? Like, if I'm a coach, you, you look at, like, football, you look at these huge stadiums and the coaching salaries and the huge coaching staffs, and all the way it's going to all these people who don't play the game and the players get nothing and have no rights. About the transfer portal, I'll be like, well, like, if, I don't begrudge Brian Kelly, but Brian Kelly left Notre Dame when they were trying to get into the college football playoff to take, what was it, $10 million a year from LSU? Why shouldn't the players be able to make that decision?
1: Oh, I agree 100%. And recently there was a, a, a tweet that I put out in regard to a comment from Lane Kiffen, because Lane Kiffen, uh, I guess it was at the SEC media days in, in advance of their fall practices starting, was bitching about the amount of money that everybody is putting out there for NIL money these days. And, you know, how are players getting this money? And I said, how, you know, I tweeted, how can you say this? This is a guy who's never won anything of any consequence and he makes $9 million a year yeah, guaranteed and and no one's dislocating
0: any of his joints. Whereas these kids yeah, suffer any brain trauma, right? Yeah. yeah. No, it, I, I agree. Like, like, the, so it, it always finds me interesting that you get a certain segment of fans who complain about what players, you know, or what freedoms they have. And it's like, why shouldn't the guy be able to like train? Like I've even had people say, Oh, maybe they, they should only be able to transfer if they're graduate or special. It's like, again, the wide open free agency, I realize that could be a little bit much, but again, you both know that in most of these colleges, the scholarship's renewable every year. Yeah. So I, after a year, I don't want the player on scholarship anymore. I can just say, "Look, goodbye." Or if I'm at a school that gives you a four-year scholarship, like I think like the SEC may do that, I can still run you off. I'll have you run stadium steps to where you'll want to leave. Well, it's uh, even
1: it's even simpler than that, Jim. The coach just has to go to the guy and say, "You're never going to be able to compete for a job here because yeah, players well, want to play." Too. Players want to play. They'd rather go somewhere else where they have a chance to play if they know that there's no chance that they're ever going to get on the field for, you know, whatever school they're at at the time. And look at your career, okay? You started off working at Baseball America. You went to stats. You came back to Baseball America. You were a journalism major, a kid at University of Georgia who's, who's there playing football. They're essentially a football major why should they yep. not have the same right at mobility that you have as a journalism major it's hypocritical
0: you are know, right like what if what if when i came out of school like i got drafted by lacrosse america and i don't even know what lacrosse america i think there was a publication called lacrosse america i don't know anything about lacrosse and maybe they're in some part of the country i don't want to live in i have no choice like i mean i'd have to go right for lacrosse america probably get paid lower than my market value. Maybe they'll give me a signing bonus, David. And then at some point I become a free agent and I can try to do whatever. But like or even if it was to cover baseball, maybe I'd get, you know, Jackson, Mississippi to cover the double A team. And I have nothing against Jackson, Mississippi, but maybe I don't want to live in Jackson. Maybe I wanna go live in the Northeast or whatever. Like, yeah, it amazes me that people think, Oh, they're getting an education. Yeah, yeah. Like somewhat like schools You know, in football particular or basketball, they're steered away from harder courses, their time commitments. You know, how many of those kids always are graduating actually too?
1: No, well, well, two things I would say. Number one, they are, and I know this from having had roommates at Arizona State that played on the baseball team. And the fact that I went out for the baseball team at Arizona State and I saw how much time that took away from my work as far as school was concerned. In effect, you're having two full-time jobs because you're an athlete yep. and you're a student. The other thing I would say is, if I would have represented you and you would have been drafted by Lacrosse America, I guarantee you would have gotten the deal you wanted.
0: Well, good, yeah, I hope so. I, I'm sure I would have, David. So. Uh, hey, I would trust you to get to, to get the deal for me. And it was, it was interesting, like, talking about how back in the day, you know, I mean, guys have agents and you'd recruit, I mean, it's a so different, you know, you, you know, you're talking about identifying players early, Agents have to recruit players earlier too. Like if you wait until they're a high school junior or senior, it's too late. Just I was telling the agents after this draft just finished; they're already looking at not just twenty. I mean, twenty guy, two thousand twenty four kids are already committed. Yeah, they're looking at two thousand five, two thousand twenty six kids right now.
1: Hundred percent, hundred percent. And the two thousand
0: twenty six kids are like fifteen years old. Right, so, right.
1: And that's way. But if you too... don't lock
0: them up now, you're not going to get them.
1: Yeah, and 15, I'm sorry, that's way too young to make a decision that is that important in terms of determining what you will do and what you will be literally for the rest of your life. Because an awful lot of people, and this may or may not be true in your case, it, it was not in mine, but an awful lot of people, when you go to college, that's the time in your life where you make a lot of lifelong friendships and in many, many, many cases meet the person that you're going to marry. So uh, a kid at 15 is not capable of making that decision and many parents of a 15-year-old prodigy athlete aren't really capable of making that decision because they were never in that position themselves to begin with and have no idea whatsoever of how to make those decisions. So what's happening is you're getting people whose interests don't necessarily coincide with that athlete and that parent, be it the college coach, be it an agent, be it a pro scout, who are influencing them and telling them, well, you should do this or do that or go to this school or go to the other school. So the the individual player, which You're a player advocate. I was a player advocate for 44 years representing them. I'm still and always will be on the side of the players. Those interests are not being served as well as they can be. And and much to to the detriment of not only those individual players, but the game itself. Because if the individual players aren't being served, how can the collective bunch of players being served.
0: Yeah. Interesting point. And, you know, the different entities you're talking about too also have different goals in mind. Like not everybody's even working toward the same purpose.
1: Right. 100%. And, and, you know, oftentimes in the case of college coaches, you're a shortstop, let's say, and they're coming to you and they're saying, you know, we want you to come to our school. Well, there's already a kid at that position and there's a kid backing him up and they're recruiting you out of high school and another kid out of high school and a junior college kid play the same position. Now, you may or may not be aware of it, and you may or may not be a kid that says, well, I don't care who else you recruit, I'm going to take the job. But nonetheless, all those things factor into your opportunity to play. And as my former college roommate and player who started as a freshman at Arizona State, Gary Atwell said, players play, players play. Thanks to Jim Callis of MLB.com. He's still on Twitter as Jim Callis, MLB. If you're enjoying the Follow the Moneyball podcast, I hope you'll share it with others who might appreciate it. Our home base is followthemoneyball.substack.com. From there, you can listen to past episodes, leave a comment, or send me a message. Instructive criticism and guest suggestions are welcome. Until next time, I'm David Sloan. Thanks for listening.